in the days ahead. Mark chapter 2, we're going to look at Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. How many of you grew up going to church as a kid? All right, you can put your hands in the air. Grew up going to church as a kid. Do you remember some of those Sunday school songs that we were taught uh, as a kid? Uh, one that comes to mind is Father Abraham. Anybody sing that song? Let's be honest. Have you ever sang Father Abraham? I'm not sure how uh, biblically accurate that song is, but uh, we sang it. It had lots of emotions. And when you got done, I mean, hopefully you got all the wiggles and squirms out. Those kids were sitting down, and then teachers had kind of, you know, the next five, ten minutes of holding their attention span before you have to move on to the next thing. Even now, it's even shorter time span. Uh, but some of those songs that you sing, uh, I'm not always sure that the, the theology is all that on point, but uh, they, they have a certain ring to them, a certain uh, tune that you're trying to sing. And uh, There's a, a kid's song that was uh, sung years ago. It says, if I had a little white box, I'd put my Jesus in and, uh, and put, them, put them in that box. And so I'm thinking about this morning, got a, a Amazon Prime box. Um, these come to our door way too often these days. And uh, but you you have those boxes, and sometimes we want to put Jesus in a box. You say, Pastor, what are you talking about? Sometimes we have this mindset of what Jesus should look like, how he should operate, and it's within the confines of our own frame of mind. Maybe it's from our past, the way that we grew up, or, or the way that we were taught that God existed in a certain format, and we have him all boxed in, so to speak, and, and we're looking at certain things and thinking, I want God to act in this way. Some, it's that time of year we're starting to get the boxes down from the attic. And uh, uh, you're, I want to ask you to participate. If you're listening online, I want you to vote and, and tell us online. But how many of you have already started getting the boxes out for Christmas? You've already started getting some of those decorations. Anybody? All right. Some of you are, you know, kind of embarrassed. Can I put my hand up? Are people going to be mean? There's no judging here. It's a judge-free zone. So uh, how many of you put your tree up before Thanksgiving? Any before Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving's out there. I'm a before Thanksgiving. Ours will be up this week. Uh, uh, we're getting uh, all that stuff out probably starting this afternoon. All right, how many of you have to wait till after Thanksgiving? It's sacrilegious if you put it up before Christmas. Vote online if you're watching online. So you put your Christmas tree up after Thanksgiving. How many of you are such purists? It has to be December 1st at least before you get it up, all right? Those are all the Scrooges. I'm, I'm kidding. But uh, all those, uh, how many of you don't even put up a Christmas tree? Anybody going to tell that? Be honest right now is that kids are all grown. I ain't doing that anymore. Uh, I think the, you start off whenever you're, you know, young and you have kids, you have the bigger is better mentality. And I posted a Christmas tree in the mountains the other day and it's like, you know, 60 feet tall. And it's like, perfect for our living room, nine, si nine foot ceiling. So Clark Griswold's eyes are a little bigger than, than the room of the, uh, the living room. But sometimes you have in mind, like, I want that bigger is, is always better. And then as you narrow it down, as the kids graduate, they move away from home, suddenly you start thinking of, you know what, that little ceramic tree that grandma had is perfect. I mean, we could put it right there on the buffet and everybody can enjoy it. It's exciting. It's, it's exciting to think about Christmas. But folks, the religious leaders in Jesus' day were trying to keep him confined to a mold. They had certain religious norms that 
characterized their lives, it characterized who they were and, and the type of people that they were. And so they had certain things. They would go to temple on certain days. They would go to the, the wall and pray. They would do all of these things. They would read prayers out of prayer books. And having traveled to Israel, I've seen them reading those prayers and reciting them. And they're, they're rocking back and forth. And I'm not making fun of them. But folks, it becomes so ritualistic that there is no relationship with God. There's no opportunity for the power of the Holy Spirit to transform lives. So, folks, we can get the idea Jesus should adapt to our rules, follow our guidelines, instead of us yielding complete control to the Holy Spirit. That's really what it's about this morning. Jesus wants to have not just our Sunday mornings. He doesn't want to have just our time of worship at 1030 on Sunday morning, but he wants our hearts he just longs to have all of us, and he wants us to yield complete control. We get the idea that Jesus should somehow uh, morph into the box that we've created him for him. We must stop trying to fit him into our religious box and realize he came to do something new. He offers us new life. And, and our, our text this morning in Mark chapter 2, he's really trying to get the Pharisees to see firsthand he wants to not only step into their world, he wants to radically transform their lives. So I invite you to look at Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. It says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were, what's that word, church? They're fasting, all right? John's disciples, the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why did John's disciples, why the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples, talking to Jesus, do not fast. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guest fast with the bridegroom when he's with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. He goes on, he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they can, will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and the worst tears made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. The wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, I pray this morning that maybe whatever uh, preconceived ideas we have about organized religion or, or how you meet with us, as your children this morning. God, I pray that we would set all of that aside and we'll just focus for the next few moments on your word and the power that you have to transform our lives. Lord, help us to try to, help us to keep from forcing you into a box and allow your Holy Spirit to have full control. And Lord, as we yield to your control, as we draw nigh to you, your word tells us that you draw nigh to us and Lord, you'll radically transform us, God. And Lord, that's what we're looking for. That's what we're expecting. That's what we're hoping. Lord, we're praying and asking that your Holy Spirit would transform our hearts and lives. And Lord, those who do not have a personal relationship with you, Lord, maybe their, their experience with church has been a, a bad experience. Maybe they're tuning in online and they're super skeptical of, of organized religion as a whole. Or maybe they've been hurt by the church. God, I pray that they would set that aside this morning and realize that 
sometimes those hurts, sometimes those failures drive us back closer in relationship with God if we'll allow them to because you want to radically change us. And God, you want us to be born into your family and you want us to experience new life and and joy and peace and and have all that uh, relationship that comes through that relationship with you. God, would you transform our hearts this morning? Would radically change our minds and God, we give you the praise and honor and glory for what you're going to accomplish. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Let's look at some of the unmet expectations of the Pharisees. Jesus did not come to reform us. He came to transform us. In fact, he came to regenerate our hearts and our lives and make us new. He wasn't trying to make us look better on the outside. He came to give us new life. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? I'm thankful this morning that when Jesus came, he didn't come to just kind of clean me up on the outside and have this superficial uh, presence of, of, of God. But no, he came in to radically transform us. And folks, as he's taking control, as we yield to his control, he's molding us into his image He's making us more like Christ. And so, folks, as I'm growing in my relationship with Christ as a disciple of Jesus, I ought to look more like him today than I did on this same day last year. I ought to look more like Jesus today than I did five years ago or ten years ago because my relationship has grown deeper. These Pharisees had unmet expectations in their lives. They were doing all these rituals. They were following all of the rules and yet there was no joy in their life. They had nothing uh, that was, uh, their, their countenance was just so solemn and, and, and void of the, the joy of the Lord. Christ was not there to make us look better on the outside. He wants to transform our lives. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, If anyone is in Christ, he is, a, what is that two words, church? New creation. All right, that was three of us just said it. Let's try it together, church. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So when Christ comes into our life, he's not just trying to dust off the old. I, and I, I like to shop at antique stores. My wife and I have a, a little antique booth in, in Fuquay, and we love shopping and, and putting things in there. And I, my favorite type of antique store is not the fine antiques. I mean, I hate to be the newsflash to you. I don't run in those circles, and you know, sometimes I'll, I'll find myself wandering into a, an antique store, don't know, really know what's about. I can appreciate fine antiques. I just can't afford them. So when I go into some of these stores, I, I'll see a certain piece of furniture, or I'll see a certain thing, and I'm like, man, that is so beautiful. And then you look at the tag, and sometimes they have no prices on them. I don't belong in a store like that. I can't afford things like that. When they don't put a price tag on it, I probably can't afford it. But as, a, as one who likes to scour uh, flea markets and yard sales and thrift stores, and we'll go into places like that, and man, you'll find a diamond in the rough. I mean, uh, recently I was in a, a store and I found a, a jadeite elephant. Well, if you've been to my office, you know I like elephants. And I've collected elephants as I travel all over the world. Uh, if I find an elephant, and, and now I have to be very uh, selective because I've got so many, uh, don't buy me one as a pastor appreciation gift because I don't have room for it. But, you know, I love them. I, I love elephants. I've been to India. I want to one day ride on an elephant. But I found a jadeite elephant for $2 in a thrift store in the mountains. And I was, 
you know, my, my daughter actually spotted it before I did, and, and I'm training them up in the way that they should go. And so she saw, she said, Dad, there's an elephant right there, and it's green, and we have lots of green stuff like that, because, you know, we have Jedi, we collect it. And so I, w- I saw this thing, and I thought it said $200. And I was like, yeah, they can keep that little elephant over there on the shelf. And, and so then I was like, well, what if it's really just $2? And so I put it in my little buggy at Goodwill, and, and we walked to the, to the register, and I said, can you check the price on that? And she said, it's $2. And I was like, sold! And I put it on the counter before she changed her mind because those things are worth a ton of money. And, and, and so I love that kind of stuff. But there's certain things that, you know, remind us of certain things. Paul says these people are miserable in their life because they don't understand the relationship that God desires to have. They don't desire. The Pharisees fasted and they walked around in misery. In fact, if you look at the the, the scriptures, the New Testament, when Christ is talking about fasting, he says you're not to tell anybody you're doing it. You're not to walk around with a scowl on your face going, sorry, I can't eat dinner tonight. I mean, I'm fasting. No, if you're fasting, you really shouldn't talk about it. And folks, what happens is that time that you would be eating and devoting to filling your stomach, you're feasting on the Lord Jesus Christ and his relationship and talking to him in prayer and allowing him to transform us. We should be walking around like, I mean, some Christians walk throughout life and they travel through life with such a scowl on their face. They look like they're absolutely miserable. And I tell people all the time, if you're one of those people, please, for the love of God, don't ever tell anyone you go to church here. Because what a horrible testimony for the name of Jesus when people walk through life and they're always acting like their life is horrible. And So look back at our text here in verse 18. He says, John's disciples, the Pharisees were fasting. People came and said, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't? fast. It's popular today for people to say, well, you know what? All religions lead to God. All religions lead to God. It's popular to hear people say this, and and people will say, as long as people are sincere, they're going to go to heaven. Anybody else hear hear that? Maybe you've even repeated that before and said, it's it's popular. Well, you know what? They're sincere, and and God's never going to send someone who's sincere uh, to, to hell, but and it's what we call religious pluralism. People that, that worship Buddha, you know, eventually they're going to find their way to God and, and God's going to save them. People who worship Hindu, a uh, way of multiple gods, will eventually lead to them to the right relationship with God. Those who worship Allah will eventually find their way to God. And, and people start having this mentality. There's many different ways or paths to get toward a relationship with God. Each of these false religions, though, are based on man's works. Each one of them are based on things that we do. And so we're talking about fasting this morning. Here the the Jews were saying, I'm doing all of these things, and we're going to talk about exactly how often they fasted because they were proud of that. They were proud of how much they were sacrificing for that relationship with God. And so here we are, we're looking at it. Each of these false religions are based on man's works. Our works, newsflash 411, are worthless in the sight of God as far as having a right relationship with God. Jesus came to bring us joy. 
not sorrow. He is the only way to God. In fact, John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. So he provides a way of salvation. But Jesus here was unconcerned about meeting the religious rules of putting him in a box and more concerned about their heart condition, where their hearts were in relation to the Father. So you could never satisfy the demands of a legalist. Jesus was unconcerned about meeting their expectations. In fact, he really didn't care. In fact, sometimes I think he kind of laughed at them because he says, you're putting all the emphasis on the externals, but God truly cares about the heart. Jesus says, they said, Jesus, why don't your disciples... Why don't they fast? Did you know religious peer pressure attempts to shame us into conformity with the system rather than a relationship with the Savior? Let me listen, listen to that one more time. Religious peer pressure attempts to shame us into a conformity with the system rather than having a right relationship with the Savior. So religious uh, practices says if you'll go to church all of these times, if you give a certain amount of money to the Lord, if your name is on a roll, if you are baptized, if you've said certain prayers and done certain things, you fast on the, the whatever date, you will be right with God. But folks, that's legalism. And folks, it it's destroys the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. That's how legalism works. It tries to shame us into conforming. So sometimes even when we do discipleship here at Calvary, we're, it's not about checking a box. We want you to be in the Word. We want you to read God's Word on a daily basis. We want you to spend time meditating on it, memorizing it, spend time in prayer. But folks, if all you've done is read a bunch of pages in the Word to check by the date and check the boxes in your Bible study book, folks, you have not worshipped God. Folks, if it's just a ritual, Jesus didn't care about the rituals. He wasn't cold and calloused. He cared more for the souls of man than the externals of the Pharisees. The Jewish custom was that after a couple would get married, they didn't go on a honeymoon right afterward. In fact, they would stay at home for up to a week of open house. Imagine this. I mean, uh, you know, I always say good Baptists can't date long, all right? My wife and I, we dated for nine weeks and got engaged. Someone said, what in the world? When you know, you know. So we were engaged, Zach, for six months after that, and then we got married. And we were, we had our wedding next door and, and where the teen, is, the teen room is now, and I mean, it was wall-to-wall -wall people. It was exciting. I mean, if we had to do it all over again, I wouldn't do all the pomp and circumstance. But we had 14 musicians and singers at our wedding. I wouldn't do all that all over again. I, it was stressful. It was crazy. It was awesome. But it was a lot. And I mean, I was stressing over every little detail because I'm a, I'm a worry person. I, I'm not worried, but I like the, I'm a perfectionist. I'm OCD. And this box is still driving me crazy right now. But I, I sit there and I mean, I wouldn't do all that. But I remember very distinctly at our reception, I mean, all the people are gathered there, and you're, you're greeting your guests, and you're seeing everybody, and people have bought presents and cards and gifts, and I'm thinking, let's grab those cards and run. <laughs> but at some point, I was thinking, we got to get out of here. We got a honeymoon to go on. But folks, in Jewish culture, that's not how it works. 
in Jewish culture, it would go on for a week. It was a whole celebration, festivities, and they would often hang out at your house for an entire week. I mean, I can't remember exactly what time we left, but it was way too long for me. I mean, I was sitting here going, let's hit the road, Jack, and don't you come back. I mean, I was ready to go on my honeymoon, and we got to our, our hotel here in Raleigh for that very first night, and my wife was so excited. She said, I want some of that wedding cake. Miss Callahan made our wedding cake, and it was one of those massive ones back in the old day. They had, the, I mean, the columns, and it had fountains and lights and multiple side cakes, and I mean, it was a big cake. And, and she said, I can't wait to get some of that cake. And here I am, brand new husband, just got to our honeymoon suite. I'm so excited. I opened up the lid and dropped the cake upside down on the carpet. <laughs> My wife was so mad, I thought our marriage is over. <laughs> she was more excited about that than she was the cake and the flower. I mean, the flowers and the, all of the hoopla of the wedding. She was excited about that wedding cake. All she got was that little teeny bite at the wedding reception. She said, I want some of that wedding cake. And I dumped it upside down on the carpet. So anyway, we ate the, the leftover piece. At, uh, at our one-year anniversary, and, and that was that. But pressure of that wedding ceremony was such that the couple never got that time alone. They were spending that time with all of their guests, and they treated them as a king and queen for the week. The guests of the bridegroom were exempt from religious observations or observances, and these rules would lessen their joy at the wedding celebration. So as they were accustomed to fasting on Mondays and Thursdays in Jewish culture, if you went to a wedding celebration as an invited guest, you didn't have to observe those religious rituals during that course of that week. And so it was something that increased their joy. If you really want to experience the power of God and see Him work in your life, folks, we must get over what people think about us and start worrying more about what God thinks of us. So often we're like, well, I've got to do all these things, and I'm keeping God confined to this little box, and what if my grandma doesn't like this, or what if my parents don't like that, or what if the church doesn't like this? And the reality is, is I want to be right with God more than I want to be right with me. I want to have that right relationship with God so that when I stand before Him, I hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. So folks, for those of us that live on the other side of the cross, because this was looking towards the cross, those who live on the other side of the cross of the resurrection, the application is so encouraging because we're not just guests of the bridegroom like back in Jewish culture and, and weddings. The Word of God calls us the bride of Christ. So think about it this morning. We can experience the true joy that comes from knowing Christ. He was helping them realize things that they didn't understand, things that they, unmet expectations that they had about God and what it was like to know God. Then there were some unexpected observations. Look at verse 19 of our text. Jesus is, it says, when Jesus said to them, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Fasting is prioritizing the feasting on God over the feasting on food. Jesus makes an, uh, an observation. He says that the religious crowd had never even thought about. He says, you wouldn't go to a wedding feast. You wouldn't go there as a guest of the bridegroom and, and simply say, sorry, can't eat. 
I know you've spent untold thousands of dollars on food. I know you've put together a week's worth of celebration and festivities, but this old boy ain't eating a single bite. No, when I go and perform a wedding ceremony, typically there's a place they have the wedding party sitting. Sometimes I'll have a place the pastor and his wife will sit, and they're wanting you to have the best. And they're wanting you to experience the, the food and the, 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 the entertainment and the, the, the excitement of the, of the weekend and that, that evening. And it, it's an exciting thing. He says, these people go as guests. They're not fasting at the wedding because you you're in the presence of the bridegroom. He says, you have Jesus with you. Why would you fast? Believers in Christ fast in their longing and feast in their belonging, folks. He's saying we ought to understand what it means to know Christ and enjoy his presence and experience. Christ is here with them on earth. We no longer have Christ here on earth today. It's common for Christians today to fast from time to time. But Christ was saying there was no need for it when they were in his presence. Imagine every single day as the disciples would get up, they were able to feast with the Lord. They were able to experience his presence and his power, see miracles performed and see him part the, the, the waters and, and heal the sick and the lame and all of these things. The religious rulers in Christ's day were always trying to find some fault in the way Christ did things. It's the third time in chapter 2 that they find some type of fault in his works. There'll be two more times in the next couple of chapters. But in the first 12 verses of chapter 2, they're, they're questioning who can forgive sin but God. Remember they lowered the, the, the paralytic man down through the roof and they're like, you can't forgive sins. He says, I am the son of God. I am deity. I have the power to forgive sins. And so then they go on and last week in the, the, the previous few verses, we saw that he was dining and eating in people's homes with publicans, with tax collectors and sinners. And they're like, how in the world is he eating with the, the least of these? The wicked, the, the outcast of society. And those are the very ones that he died to save. So this week, they're finding fault in the area of fasting. And can I just say this? The, the Pharisees were a bunch of busybodies. If they actually had a relationship with God, they wouldn't have time to focus on everything else that everyone else was doing. They're busybodies. Uh, and today's culture would call them a Karen. I mean, not, if your name is Karen, please don't be offended. I'm not, offend, I'm not talking about you. But the people, they're always in everybody else's business, focusing on what everyone else is doing. You know what? If you and I stay in a right relationship with God, it's full time. Can I get a witness? It's full time. If we stay in a right relationship with God, folks, it's all we can do to stay focused on his word and what he wants for my life today. And folks, I don't have time to worry about every other person around me. It's just me and my relationship with God. Fasting was, a command, was commanded in scripture only one day of the year, the day of atonement. But by the time Jesus comes on the scene here, Pharisees had decreed that godly people should fast not once a year, but twice a week. 
Mondays and Thursdays. All right, so talk about intermittent fasting. I'm talking about every week. I mean, they must have been in some serious good shape and health. I mean, you know, you're fasting two days a week. I mean, I think I would be half the man I am today if I was not eating for two days out of seven. I mean, let's just be honest and real. But and so they, 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 their attitude was derived from a mother, among other things, a false assumption that true religion was a solemn, joyless affair, an assumption that some people hold today. Jesus foreshadowed his sorrowful death and promised his joyful return. He says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to send a comforter. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And folks, he gives us joy in the midst of trials. He gives us peace that passes all understanding. He gives us the hope of heaven of knowing one day I'll, have, I'll spend all of eternity in a place called heaven. Irma Bombeck, who's a well-known writer from years ago, was told about sitting in church one Sunday. And she said, a small child turned around. And you remember the days when you sat in church and you didn't make a sound. I mean, you didn't move. I mean, you're going to get swatted. I remember one person told me one time, said, I was sitting behind you in church as a kid, and you were tearing up, you were just, you know, cutting up, and they said, your mom grabbed your ear and twisted it, and I was confident it was going to be dislocated from your head before she got done. She said, she twisted that ear, and she, it got your attention. Irma Bombeck says, this child is turned around, and they're smiling at all the people behind her. She was smiling, not making a sound. When her mother noticed, she said in a stage whisper, stop the grinning, you're in church. She gave her a swat, and then she said, that's better. Irma concluded that some people come to church looking like they've just read the will of a rich relative and learned that she left everything to her pet hamster. You see, sometimes we go through life and we think, man, everybody in church ought to be sitting there miserable. Not me. <laughs> Not me. I think when we come to church, it is a celebration and an overflow of what God's been doing in my life all week. And folks, I'll, I get excited. I can't just sit on my hands. I know most of us grew up in a situation where, you know, lifting your hands in worship is sacrilegious. But Christ says to lift your hands and praise and glorify the Savior. And folks, I, I can't sit still. I can't be silent. The Word of God says the rocks will cry out in worship if we don't praise them in worship. So have you ever met people that called themselves Christian and somehow they always seem like some poor, unfortunate soul? Folks, they, they go through life looking like they are just absolutely had the worst day of their life. You know what? Some of the happiest, most joyful people, if you actually get to know them and their testimony... God has delivered them from some of the most horrific situations. Remember a lady years ago that she would sit in church and she had such a beautiful smile and glow about her. And I remember a, a couple that were renewed our church and they said, man, I, I watched that lady and she just must have the most awesome life because she looks so happy. And I said, let me tell you just a small portion of her story. Her first husband beat her. And she escaped with her life. And I said, God put her with this, with her new, current husband, her new husband, and she led him to faith in Jesus Christ. 
and has said the joy that they have on their faces when you see them on Sunday morning is after much pain and suffering. But folks, they have joy because they have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And they've overcome so much tragedy and they've triumphed in, the, in who Christ is. I love the verse, Psalm 118, verse 24 says, This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. If you know Miss Flo Stoll, Miss Flo is a, a, a missionary our church supports. You can't run into Flo anywhere without her saying, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us, if you call her cell phone right now, if I could get her, she's in church this morning in Ohio. But if I called her phone, she would open, she would answer the phone with this verse. And what happens is when you have the joy of the Lord in your life, you can't get enough of that relationship with Jesus. It changes who we are. We see some unfit formations. Look at verse 21 of our text. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth to an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. The wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. These last couple of verses You'll have some clarity as Christ describes how the religious leaders in his day were trying to fit Jesus into a box. These verses, he says, you don't sew a piece of new cloth to an old garment. He says something's already, you, you, you wash something, you buy a shirt. I, I have this happen to me all the time. I, I think the clothes are getting smaller these days, and I don't know, but you wash this shirt, and, and you try it on when you first get it. It fits fine. And it comes out of the shower and it looks like it's like a doggy sweater. I mean, you're like, how did that happen? I mean, I had it on my body just a, you know, five minutes ago, threw it through the washer and dryer, and now it comes out and it's like a size extra, extra small. And, and I don't know what happened, but folks, you don't sew a new piece of fabric to an old garment. He says, it's not going to match. It's not going to work. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If it does, the wine will burst in the skins and it's all destroyed. It's impossible to stitch Jesus into a tattered religious garment. Their religion was all about works. Jesus died so that they didn't have to work to receive God's favor and forgiveness. Salvation is a free gift. Salvation doesn't fit into the box that man has created for God. We want him to be that, the one that we pull out of the box when we need him. We want God when we need him. And, but otherwise, he cramps our style, so we put him back in the box. We want God on 9-11. We want God in a time of war. We want God to help get our troops, our troops and the Americans out of Afghanistan before an August 31st deadline. We want God to help those Boy Scouts a few years ago that are trapped in the cave underwater. We want God to, to spare our beach house uh, in North Carolina when a hurricane is coming through. We want God to, to keep us safe in a pandemic. We want God only when we want Him, folks. Otherwise... I'm going to put him back in my little white box. And I'm going to keep him there for safekeeping. Because I don't want him to impede on my life. Friends, that's not how a relationship works. That's why people have tried religion and found it cold and dead and lifeless. Jesus claimed that we might have life and might have it more abundantly. 
So, Pastor, what's the application? The gospel cannot fit into an old religious system without completely bursting it wide open. <laughs> when I see a person who gets saved, you say, Pastor, uh, do you have church people that get saved all the time? People say, Pastor, I grew up in church and blah, blah, blah. And, and I, was, I was witnessing to someone the other day and they were like, Pastor, you know, I, I understand the trilogy. And, and I was like, the trilogy? And they said, yeah, you know, the trilogy, the God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. And I was like, man, I, I love this. I mean, this is so awesome. And they, they're like, you know, the, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Oh, yeah, the trilogy, the Trinity. Yes, I get it. And so what happens is religious people still get saved. Because they've grown up in church and they've had all the trapments of religion, but what they don't have is the relationship that Jesus Christ is offering us as his children. Jesus said, no one puts new wine into old skins. It will burst the skins wide open. You see what happens is we can't cram him into a box. He wants us to yield complete control to him. And doing this, the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. Jesus said new wine is for fresh wine skins. The old set of wine skins are brittle and old and will not endure it. Folks, if we're trying to fit Jesus into our little religious box, we have missed the entire point of why he came to earth. Jesus Christ didn't come in a, a little manger shawl. We're going to have that up here on stage here in just a few days. He didn't come just so we could put him on the mantle at, during the month of December, after Thanksgiving, of course, uh, have a little display of Jesus. And, and we, then we put him back in the box and we put him back in the attic and we wait till next year. Oh yeah, at Easter we celebrate the resurrection and so we have like a little cross that we get out and we dust it off and put it up and you know, we, we have a big meal on, on for Easter Sunday and we buy our outfit for Easter Sunday church and we look good and all of these things. But folks, the reality is, is we're trying to keep putting them back in that box. He's saying, I desire a right relationship with you. I want to work in your heart. If we're trying to fit Christ into that tidy religious box, we've acquired the wrong box. He longs to reside in our heart and in our lives, folks. And it's not through a dead religion. He wants to give us new life in Christ. Let me encourage you this morning to beware of unscriptural rituals. Because even in Bible teaching and preaching churches, rituals that are not even in scripture can creep in and if we're not careful well this is the way we always do it i said it a few weeks ago uh, one religion they always wore hats in worship why because the pastor wore a hat why because there were rats running around on the rafters of the building and they were afraid that the droppings would hit them in the head <laughs> the reality is had nothing to do with uh, it became a ritual and if we're not careful, we can pray the same prayer and it becomes systematic works. Well, pastor, we fast. We do this, we do that. But it's become a, a works-based religion. 
that reflective. Folks, what happens if we're not careful, things can creep in our lives that makes us think that we're experiencing God, and yet we're so far from Him. These are works of a religion that's dead and without the life that Jesus died to offer you and me. It's time to destroy the box, tear it down, put it in the recycling bin, put it at the curb on Wednesday morning when they come by and pick up the recycling and allow him to have free reign of our hearts and lives. Church, it's time that we allow him to have control and make us new from the inside. Now, do you know Christ is your savior? Don't fit him into a box. Don't try to cram him into a small compartment, but yield your heart and your life to him. And folks, he will give us joy unspeakable. He'll give us something to sing about. He gives us a new focus, a new purpose, a new reason for living. And folks, he will bring joy in your greatest moment of sorrow if you'll just give him control of your life. Heavenly Father, would you work in our hearts this morning? Lord, I pray that you would convict us. Lord, anything that we've done that's tried to force you into a box to adapt to our own version of religion. God, I pray we would flatten that box, put it in the trash in the recycling bin. And God, I pray we would make room for you to have full reign and control of our hearts and lives this morning. Well, I don't want anything to hinder my relationship with you this morning. And God, I ask that whatever rituals, religious entrapments that we've placed on you, God, may we set those aside and would focus just on worshiping you, exalting you, lifting high your name. And God, will we leave this morning better equipped for your Holy Spirit to transform us this week? God, help us to not read your word to check off a box or to fulfill a duty or an expectation or, or go to church because mom or dad or grandma thinks that we should. But God, help us to desire that for our own selves. God, and may you bring joy in our lives in a, in a significant way. God, help us to experience that joy this morning through worship. What is we conclude in this final song, God? May we give you the glory and the honor and the praise for what you're going to accomplish and not limit the movement of your Holy Spirit. God, we give you the honor and glory and praise in Jesus' name we pray. I mean, let's stand to our feet as we sing this last song as the band leads us in worship. Let's pray that the Holy Spirit of God would minister to us and through us this week, that God would get the glory.